your church. We kind of have friends of friends. I've got a lot of uh, connections at Sterling Park. So I know of Jacob and of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. This church plant for a while, I think, since it started. So it's a joy to officially be here with you guys. Um, Jacob has become one of my favorite people in the area. Super encouraging and just lovable guy. So I think you guys are blessed to have him as a pastor. I didn't get to bring my family with me this morning, but I did bring my friend Brett here on the front row. So give a wave, Brett. Almost as good. So um, 14 years ago, or or let me say it this way. Brett is uh, 14 months, something like that, sober, 15 months sober, and maybe 12 or 13 months converted. And on the uh, ride over here this morning, we were talking about how Brett's facing this, you know, new weird thing of getting in trouble at work for sharing the gospel and talking about Christ, stuff he's never dealt with before. So, um, yeah, sometimes God uses new Christians as a sort of spark plug to the, to the rest of us, and the Lord certainly already used that in my life through Brett, and you should get to know him. You should say hello to him after the service. So this morning we're going to talk about something that I think is common to all of humanity for as long as there has been humanity. So we're going to talk about, as Jake, Jacob mentioned uh, earlier, uh, anxiety. So we're going to hear Jesus teach on the theme of anxiety. And one of the things that's most fascinating to me about this topic is how apparently it's been here, as I already suggested, for a really long time. So I tend to think, okay, cell phones, nine to fives, Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. Of course, a society, a culture like ours has anxiety. All these things give birth to, it seems, anxiety. But here, what's so fascinating, we're going to see in a few moments, Jesus is speaking to disciples in like an agrarian culture, fishermen and you know, uh, just very normal people and didn't have watches and weren't bound to them in the same way that we are. And they were apparently dealing with anxiety. So not a new thing. And anxiety is something that hits us in different ways. So some of you may uh, be very familiar, painfully so, with anxiety. Others of you may feel like anxiety is something that's just foreign to your experience. And if the rest of us find that out, we probably won't like you or appreciate you very much. But even you, uh, things change. Life happens and circumstances change. So I consider myself sort of a, uh, an emotional like rock or a really psychologically stable guy. I figure I take after my dad. My dad's the sort of guy that you know, could be sitting in the house while bombs are going off in the yard and my mom's freaking out. My dad would be like, well, everything's fine. Everything's good. And you'd actually believe him and he'd actually believe it. He's that sort of guy I figure I take after him not too prone to anxiety or worry or fear. And then we decided to church plant. So that's the sort of thing that sounds incredibly exciting and adventurous on the front end. And, you know, it's like the Navy SEALs of pastoral ministry going to, that's what I told myself. And then you move your family cross country to a city where you don't know anybody except for other pastors like Jacob, who for the record are not going to join your church. So now the fun begins and all these paralyzing questions start flooding into your mind like where in the world are we going to find people? Right? People don't just show up because you tweet about it or something. Uh, And not just people. How are we going to actually find lost people? Like if all we... I'm so thankful that we have help in the area 
and Christians who are covenanting with, I would never, I'm sure there are guys that could like do this, like just me and I'm going to evangelize my way through it. I'm not that guy. Like maybe Paul was that guy. I'm not that guy. So we're dependent upon other Christians to help us to reach people. So I'm thankful to God for that. But if all we do at the end of the day after this year or 10 years from now is just reshuffle the deck of Christians, like is that really advancing the kingdom? Does that really justify a church plant? So where are we going to find people? How are we going to reach lost people? How are we going to find money? So I don't have any statistical evidence to prove this, but just anecdotally from my own experience talking to other pastors and those like me who would be prone to consider such a thing as church planting, I think the number one hesitancy people have, guys like me have, to signing up for this thing they might otherwise consider is money. You got to fundraise. Who wants to fundraise? Pastors are certainly not like equipped to fundraise, right? So where are we going to find money? Am I up for this? So what if this fails? Like in the short term, like in the next year or three years, if this fails, how am I going to feed my family? I got three little girls and a wife, depending upon, like she's staying at home with the kids. So what's our, what's our path? Uh, long term, like what does this mean for my career? So if you fail as a church planter, does that mean you weren't, after all, called to pastoral ministry? Maybe I could go back to being a sort of cog in the machine of a megachurch like I was before. Or maybe you just need to find a new career. What about the guy I talked into moving cross-country out here with me, fellow pastor, to jump off this cliff together with me? What about him? If we fail, I talked him into this. Is that on me for the rest of my life? Uh, if, if, what, what if something happens interpersonally with us? Like, what if I have to fire him before we even start? What if he has to fire me before we even start? Right? So all these questions come flooding in. And by the way, there's two of us now. So back to my first most daunting question. How in the world are we going to pay for this? Only it's even more intimidating now. And for the record, you know, we've been here 10 months. And God, had, I just don't want you to think I'm like sending subliminal signals so that you'll slip some dollar bills into my pocket after the service. God has wonderfully provided. It's been amazing. But all these questions, I'm trying to give you a sense of what starts flooding in this past fall after we move out here. I'm waking up in the middle of the night with these questions, unable to return to sleep. Uh, We take a trip down as a family to Raleigh, where I'm from, for some church plant training. And my wife is with me. The kids are in the back of the van. She has no idea what's going on. I'm like dying on the inside with all these questions. And she asks me something super innocent like, what do you want to do for lunch or something like that? And I bite her head off and she's like, Matt, what in the world is going on? Okay. So I'm, so I'm like trying to explain to her what I'm, what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. I think I said something about my chest crawling out of itself, outside of itself. And my wife, who's much more astute than I am says, Matt, that's called anxiety. (laughs) And I'm like, Oh, I guess I've lived a pretty cushy life and nice to meet you. So I say all that as a backdrop before we open up God's word this morning, because I want to show you that these words that I I hope come as comfort and encouragement to you are very much words that have been sustenance and food to me in this bizarre season that we're in as church planters, such as yourself. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up now to Luke chapter 12, and we're going to listen to the Lord Jesus speak on the theme of anxiety. So Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to read for us now. 
We're going to cover 22 to 34 this morning, but I'm going to start by reading 22 to 31. Here are the words of Jesus to his disciples. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. This is God's word for us this morning. If you're a note taker, I've got two points I'm going to cover this morning. So this passage and Jesus' words in this passage are built off of two primary commands. The first one, a negative command, don't do this. The second, a positive command, do this. And those are going to be our basic points for this morning. So number one, point number one and command number one, don't be anxious. Do not be anxious. Verse 22, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So I realize we're stepping into Luke. You guys aren't in the middle of a series that I know of at least uh, on Luke. So we have no context, just really high level context. What's happening here is Jesus has this band of ragtag disciples that he's forming into a new people a new community. So he's shaping the way they think, giving them new ideas and values, new ways of life, the way they live. You're not to be like the world. You're to be different. Here's what you're to be like. And here he goes off on the subject again of anxiety. Let's talk disciples, he says, about anxiety. And he basically gives, at least by my count, five lessons on the theme of anxiety. So point number one, don't worry. And under that, Jesus gives five lessons on why we shouldn't worry. So you ready for five lessons from the Lord Jesus on something common to most all of us, anxiety. Lesson number one, life is more than food and clothes. Lesson number one, life is more than food and clothes. So where does anxiety come from? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe some of you who've got more experience with anxiety and worry and fear. Have you ever thought about where this actually comes from? Now, before I go anything further and say anything else, I need to give a gigantic disclaimer here in that I do think we're about to cover this in a way that I trust will help all of us, whether we've never dealt with anxiety before or we're just paralyzed in the bowels of deep anxiety. I think Jesus gives words of help and comfort to all of us. However, I'm certainly not a psychologist or a doctor or anything of the sort, and I don't want to suggest for a moment that 
Even what we have here from Jesus is a sort of silver bullet cure for everything you or I might have dealt with in the different ways that anxiety hits us. We live in a fallen world, and sometimes that means it's helpful and even appropriate to go see a counselor or professional help or even medication at times. And I don't think Jesus suggests otherwise here. But I do think he has help for all of us. So Jesus here begins by pulling back the curtain, so to speak, on anxiety and helping us to get at the roots of anxiety. So where does it come from? Well, I want to suggest to you that the Bible, the story, the big story of the entire Bible, actually, if you think about it, makes perfect sense of anxiety and where it comes from. Think about it. The Bible begins, the story begins with a king, God himself, ruling over all creation. And significantly, so that cup was just dropped, and it is so okay. This is the most hilarious look of guilt, and it doesn't bother me in the least bit. It is totally okay, man. You're good. It didn't, it, we are so fine. Don't have anxiety over that. The Lord Jesus has words for you. So the Bible begins with this story of one ruler over all the earth, powerful and good, and importantly, who alone is capable of ordering and ruling over this creation perfectly, including all the affairs of his people, mankind, like us. However, just as quickly as you turn just a couple pages into this story, those people all rebel. And this is significant. The nature of their rebellion was to attempt an overthrow of God as ruler. That's what sin is. It's, it's, not, it's not just doing wrong things. The nature of it at its core is trying to displace God as the ruler, the king of us, and to insert in his place ourselves. All an illusion, as it turns out, but it is an illusion. Sin makes us think that we are in control of things, that we are the masters of our own destinies. Only come to find out we're not so good at it, are we? So we can't control our present, much less our future. We can't control our own lives, much less the lives of our spouses or children or those around us. So this new project of attempting to displace God and now rule ourselves, I want to suggest to you, gives birth to anxiety. Think about it. Why do you fear? Why do you worry? Well, doesn't it have something to do with you and I not knowing the future? And isn't it because from the moment we're born, we progressively buy into this lie, this illusion, all of us, that we're in control? And so we must take control lest things turn out bad? And so we fret and we sweat over, well, everything. Friends and relationships, jobs and job security, money and finances, sickness and health, clothing, clothing and appearance, children, our children's clothing and appearance, our children's finances, our children's jobs, our children's relationships, and on and on and on. And Jesus says, but life is more than food. And the body is more than clothing. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. There's this basic view of the world here that Jesus is taking on in direct opposition to it. And this basic view of the world sees this world as an end in itself. So this life is all there is. This world is all there is. There's no heaven. There's no afterlife. There's no God. There's nothing but what's right here and right now in front of us. Jesus helpfully boils all this down, this way of thinking, down to two things, food and clothes. 
the most basic necessities of life, the here and now, and you and I are in charge of it, hence anxiety and worry over it. And here it's like Jesus takes these disciples and us by extension, and it's like he gives us this special pair of glasses. And if you put on these glasses, you can finally see what otherwise you've been so along with the world paralyzed and incapable of seeing that life is more than food and clothing. Oh yeah, life is more than my next meal. Oh yeah. Thank you, Jesus, for reminding me I'm going to die someday. And oh, yeah, when I die, I'm going to meet God. And he's in charge and not me. And oh, yeah, I'm going to therefore eat this meal. In some ways, I'm going to cherish it even more. But I'm not going to eat this meal like an atheist, as though this falafel is the chief end of my existence. Life is more than food and clothes. Lesson number two, the ravens are full. Lesson two from Jesus on anxiety. The ravens are full. Verse 24, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Now when I say or you hear or read the word or the, of the animal, the raven, what comes to your mind? You can talk. Poe, right? Maybe some of you Baltimore Ravens, but we, we, should, we should read more, right? So my mind immediately goes to eighth grade or whatever it was when I first heard this, this poem called The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe, where this man is sitting in a room despairing of his loss of his beloved Lenore, and this talking bird comes tap, tap, tapping to his window and just repeatedly says the same thing again, one word, haunting again and again and again, quoth the raven, nevermore, until the guy literally goes nuts. Now, side note, why in the world do schools, public schools, private schools, whatever, think it's a good idea for eighth graders to read that poem, right? So that, that right? So that's where my mind goes. I'm not actually, I'm just saying, that's crazy to me. So uh, my mind goes there, and therefore I think of ravens as these awful, like, horror story-like creatures. And actually, in the Bible, ravens don't fare that much better. So they're scavenger birds. I actually, incidentally, was thinking about this passage and driving to Tyson's Corner and saw, I won't get into details, but a raven scavenging on the side of the road this week. They're scavenger birds, and they're listed out by Moses in the law as being ceremonially unclean. So God's people aren't to touch, much less to ever think about eating these filthy birds. So now with that in the background, think about what Jesus is saying here. You've got an unclean, undesirable creature, and Jesus looks at it and says, God sees to it that that thing in the gutter of God's animal kingdom, so to speak, is cared for and fed. What do you think he's going to do for you, his children? The pinnacle of his creation. He feeds those filthy birds. You don't think he's going to take care of you? His child? Of course he is. He, of course he's going to provide for your needs. He feeds the ravens. The ravens are full. Lesson number three. Anxiety tells lies. Lesson number three from Jesus. Anxiety tells lies. So back to anxiety for a moment. We've started just to 
for a little bit, unmask it with Jesus' help here. And now we're going to unmask it a little bit more. Anxiety is a symptom of our condition as rebels. We've already talked briefly about that. It is birthed out of our own sinful project to rule the world. And along the same lines, adding further now to that, I want to show you that anxiety feeds off of a basic lie. In other words, there is such a thing as anxiety that so many of us struggle with, and it works because it always comes with a lie that we, you and I, are incredibly prone to believe. That's why anxiety works, and here's the lie that it comes with. You and I, by worrying, by fear, by anxiety, can alter the future. That's the lie of anxiety. Verse 25, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a small thing of that as that, why are you anxious about the rest? This is where Jesus just sort of, we're on anxiety and just rips the bandaid off. And it hurts, but it's good. Like if I'm in a counseling session with somebody telling me that they're struggling with worry and fear, like if I say to them, you know it won't help, right? That's terrible. That's terrible counseling. Like it's, so, it's so pastorally insensitive. Nobody would ever come back to me. But this is the Lord Jesus. And he does this here because we, we need to hear it. All of us, your worrying won't help. It won't do anything. It cannot change the future. That's the lie of anxiety. It works off of an illusion of control, but it is an illusion. You can't actually change the future. The oldest living person that we know of, planet Earth right now, as of a few days ago when I did this Google search, is a Japanese man named Masazo Nonaka. He's 112 years old. That's amazing. He just recently displaced, I think, a 117-year-old lady for the crown that she recently passed. He's 112 years old, and according to the article that I read, he spends his time watching sumo wrestling and eating desserts. <laughs> what a life, right? Like, is that what heaven will be like? When asked the secret to his long life, he said the secret was the sweets. Now, I don't know if there are doctors in here, but what if he's right? <laughs> Conversely, Pistol Pete Maravich, you guys remember that name? I could have chosen a hundred examples here, but I'm, I'm from the South and I grew up watching that movie every year on repeat of Pistol Pete Maravich. Pistol Pete Maravich, elite athlete, 40 years old, playing a casual game of basketball. Pete averaged like 45 points a game at LSU college. Like that'll never happen again, right? 40 years old, playing a casual game of basketball with his friend James Dobson. Yes, that James Dobson, same guy. He collapses in the middle of the game and he dies on the spot. His final words right before he fell as given to us by James Dobson, who he said them to, were, I feel great. I just feel great. And his heart stopped beating, and he hit the floor. I'm not trying to depress you. I'm certainly not trying to dissuade any of you from eating your veggies and going to the gym. Though, honestly, I won't feel bad if Jesus' words here encourage some of you to occasionally enjoy a slice of pizza and a glass of Coke. These are some of God's kindest gifts to us. <laughs> But I do want to expose the lie that Jesus is showing us here. We cannot control the future. 
and worrying about it won't change that fact. In fact, a cruel twist of irony, as we all know, the more we worry about the future, ironically, the shorter our lifespan is prone to be. Anxiety works off a lie. Anxiety deceives us. Maybe the greatest preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, guy in London, England, famously said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now that sounds on the surface, depending on who said it, like it could be any sort of cheap pop self-help psychology that you could find in any bad bookstore. But think about what he's saying. In here, like I have a thing and you have a thing, even as a Christian, called the flesh. And all sorts of bad, toxic things gurgle up from that flesh. So what that means is, is if when life hits me or you, when bad stuff happens, when dark clouds come over my life, if all I or you do is passively sit by and let whatever's in there bubble up to the surface, what do you think you're going to get? So what Louis-Jones is saying, no, 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 rather than, we ought to actually be actively pulling stuff from outside of ourselves, namely as in mind the, the word of God, the promises of God, and preaching those things to ourselves. I am God's child. God is my father and I am his son or I am his daughter. He cares for the ravens. He will certainly care for me. He's for me. He's not against me. Anxiety tells lies. Lesson number four. The lilies are dressed. The lilies are dressed. Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Solomon is noteworthy in the Bible for many things, some of them good, some of them bad. Here, Jesus is just drawing attention to the fact that Solomon was incredibly wealthy, and by virtue of his wealth, he became known as the best dresser, apparently, in all the land. So who could dress better than the wealthiest of kings? You just imagine the jeweled crown and the royal flowing robes. And even Solomon, says Jesus, cannot hold a candle to the common lily when it blooms. Now lilies, unlike ravens, they're not considered unclean ceremonially by the law or anything like that. That's not the point of this picture. Rather, Jesus is highlighting here the fact that lilies are incredibly short-lived. So they're alive in the field today and thrown into the oven tomorrow. They bloom and as Amazing as they are, like a week, I don't know how long they are, two weeks later, it's over. Or they're mowed up by the lawnmower. They're gone. Now, you would think, and I would think, if God designed these plants to survive so shortly, he wouldn't give much care or attention to what they wear, so to speak, or how they look. But think again, Jesus says. God clothes these plants with a beauty, all the money in the world, sorry Solomon, couldn't afford. That plain green stem is dressed in those petals which open up into an array of wild, bright colors. And now all these years later, nobody on Valentine's Day is giving to their significant others pictures of Solomon. Conversely, 
you and I are going to live forever. We're all going to live forever somewhere. You have an undying soul in you. So Jesus is saying, surely he'll provide you with the clothes you need. After all, he clothes the lilies and he takes special care to how they're clothed. You don't think he'll clothe you in this life? And if we'll take our eyes off of this locked stare into the things of this world and by faith in Christ look to God for salvation, he'll clothe us with the righteous clothes we need for the next life, for entrance into heaven where sinlessness and spotlessness and white robes are required. Look at the lilies. Lesson number five, last lesson from Jesus on anxiety. Your father knows. Lesson number five, your father knows. Verse 30, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. So imagine a story where there's some great king of a castle and some gigantic land, and the king has children, and he has one precious firstborn daughter, and the daughter goes missing. So they look for hours, and the hours turn into days, and the daughter is completely gone. So the king, with all his wealth and power and resources, sends out, send out, sends out uh, search parties into all the corners of all the kingdom to look for this missing beloved daughter. And one servant of the king sent out to one dark, random corner of the kingdom finds the daughter locked up, malnourished, suffering at the hands of some evil villain. Now imagine that this servant of the king realizes, you know, she's in chains, there are guards and that whole nine yards. He's in no position to actually free her. But he looks at her, he looks at her in the eye and he says, look, I'm going and I'm going to tell your dad everything. Now my question for you is, what does it mean for the king to know of his daughter's condition? What does it mean for him to find out? What does it mean for that girl to hear your dad's about to know everything? It means help is on the way, right? It means rescue is coming. It means food and proper clothing and blankets. And it means that crook who's kidnapped her is about to be in a whole heap of trouble. Now hear again the words of Jesus. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. God knows. Your Father knows. God is not in the dark, even about little old you, and your needs, and your fears, and your anxieties. And what Jesus means to imply here is God's knowing, his knowledge equals God's provision. Like my earthly dad is a good dad, but even if he knows of my needs, he might not be in a position to help me. He might not have the resources, he might not be strong enough, etc. That's not the case with God. For God to know and to care equals for God to provide. Jesus' entire point here hinges upon that. God knows what we think we need, and God knows what we actually need. And let's be honest, sometimes there's a big gap between those two things. God knows your fears and God knows your anxieties. Your father knows your needs and he's going to care for you, Jesus says. This entire passage depends upon one precious little or massive, depending on how you're looking at it, doctrine. So there's one doctrine. Jesus doesn't utter the word here. 
But if you take away this doctrine, everything he says here utterly falls apart. And that one doctrine is the doctrine of providence. That is the doctrine that God is overseeing and in charge of the affairs of the entire earth. All the trees and birds and lilies and nations and kings and even your life. It's, it's God's sovereignty, his power, or ability in action. Think about it. According to Jesus, why are ravens fed? And why are the lilies dressed? Who's feeding ravens and who's dressing the lilies according to Jesus? God is. Now, did Jesus not know that ravens like have minds and beaks and and did you not know about light and water and photosynthesis or however whatever I don't whatever it is that makes lilies bloom? Or does Jesus grasp something that we're all particularly 2018 our scientific age and scientific minds so prone to forget? That God is ruling over everything, including your life. No accidents with God. No surprises. Only purpose and care for the nations of the world and for your life. So don't worry, Jesus says. Trust God. That's the first point that he makes in ten different ways. And that brings us lastly to the second point, which I'll conclude with and which will be much shorter. Um, Point number two, command number two, we've got don't worry. And now positively, Jesus says, seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. So don't worry. And a lot about don't worry. That's great. But if you think about it, maybe not all that helpful. Like with anything, you can tell me a hundred facts about the ill effects of gluttony or pride or gossip or pornography or pick your besetting sin that you or I are prone to get stuck into. You can tell me everything in the world that's wrong with it. All these facts. You might scare me to death. You might have even intellectually convinced me. But you've given me no power to actually overcome my hunger or my sin. Telling me all the reasons I shouldn't be anxious, if anything, just makes me more anxious. Don't worry, because if you do, you'll live not as long. Well, now I'm worried about my worrying and what that's going to do my lifespan. Right? So maybe true, but unhelpful. I need, you need something bigger, something better to stop one thing that comes very natural to all of us. We need to replace it with something even better that crowds out our hunger for food or our desire for sin or our penchant for worry. Instead, seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's useless. Don't worry. He feeds the ravens. Don't worry. He dresses the lilies. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Instead, seek the kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. Now, what is the kingdom? Like a lot, a lot rides on this, right? So what is, what is the kingdom? Well, sad to say, like libraries and libraries have been filled of books debating what the kingdom of God is. But for our purposes here this morning, let's just stick to the most basic summary answer. The kingdom of God, which we're supposed to seek, is where God is. And it's where God is king. And it's where his rule is submitted to and obeyed. It's where all the other false kingdoms of my rule and your rule, putting ourselves in the place of God, where those kingdoms, those false kingdoms, are rejected for the lies and the illusions that they are of us controlling our own futures, all that rejected. So to seek the kingdom, if you want to boil it down into one phrase, to seek the kingdom simply means to seek God and to seek God's rule as king. And there's only one way to do this. 
So that's the kingdom we're to seek. There's only one way to do it. You must do it exclusively and entirely. The Gospels are clear on this. Jesus is clear on this again and again and again. You must abandon all else in this pursuit of the kingdom. So let me pick up now these last few verses that I didn't read at the outset, but which are attached to this passage and have everything to do with it. Jesus says, seek the kingdom, and then he turns right around. He says, verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Gospels are filled with incredibly hard sayings like this. And they're striking the same point again and again and again and again. If you want God. So, so you're here this morning saying you want God and you want to seek his kingdom. Good. If you want God. If you want entrance into his kingdom, you've got to be willing to part with everything else. You, you cannot enter the kingdom sideways or halfways. It's all or nothing. Jesus says your right arm keeping you from the kingdom, causing you to sin, cut it off. It, it, it's a metaphor, but the metaphor is meant to be striking. Your, your parents are holding you back from seeking God. Let the dead bury their own. It just repeated shocking phrase after shocking phrase to make the same point. This is all or nothing. You, you must pursue God at the cost of everything else if it gets in your way of seeking God. So if you're an unbeliever here with us this morning, incredibly glad you would turn up. I don't know who any of you are, so you may all be unbelievers as far as I know, or, right? incredibly glad you show up. You need to know and you need to hear us say that you cannot hold on to your sin and enter God's kingdom. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. You can have your sin or you can have God, but you cannot have both. You have to be willing to cut off everything, whatever it is that causes you to sin. You have to be willing to let go of other things that you love and have treated like God. Money, sex, relationships, whatever. There's a proper way to enjoy all those things, but you can only have one God. So will you let them go? Letting those things go is what the Bible calls repentance. Turning away from them and by faith, positively filling, replacing those things with Jesus, with God. Repentance and faith. Will you repent this morning? And believer, I'm going to close with the master's final words to you. Verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus says, fear not. And, and just to be clear, this isn't, like, this isn't like an angry command. Stop fearing! These are words of comfort. Fear not, little flock, speaking like to his own little children. Fear not, little flock. Now think about all the reasons we just as believers have to fear. Uh, the devil? If, if you believe the Bible, we have an enemy trying to destroy us. Who wouldn't rightly fear that? Our own flesh. We've already talked about what's in there. The world itself is, newsflash 2018, not particularly for Christians. Not that it ever was, but now it's painfully obvious that it's not. Our minority exile status in this world, our flesh, sin, which by nature is deceitful. So think about it. Sin comes. Sin never self-advertises its true nature. Sin doesn't come to you or to me and saying, hey, yeah, yeah, partake in me. 
and I will destroy you. I'll feel really good for a second, but I will destroy you. I will poison your soul. That's not what sin does. Sin comes saying, hey, I, there is nothing else in the entire world that will satisfy you but this right here. How is that not scary? It's by nature deceitful. It tells lies. And then not to mention all the other fears we as believers share in common with the rest of the world. Money, work, kids, school, health, clothing, food, aging, death. Fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. Why? Because it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. I, I love how Jesus boils all this down to one thing. It's like Moses gave us all these 630 or whatever it was laws and God's people could never keep them. Well, Jesus sort of simplifies things. He gives us one law here. Seek the kingdom. That's the good news. I like the simplicity, but it's impossible. That's the bad news. Like who of us can seek the kingdom? We're by nature rebels. How can we enter into this thing which requires everything of us? Seek the kingdom, but no, it's the Father, Jesus says, who is giving it to you. It's not earn the kingdom, it's seek the kingdom. And Jesus says those words. He says, do not worry. And then he tells them to seek the kingdom. And then he walks on and he dies on a cross in their place to give them the kingdom. It's the Father who is giving it to us. Our mentality as Christians is often that God, ever disappointed in our shortcomings, will grudgingly give us of his bounty if for no other reason than that he has to. After all, he's promised, he's paid for our sins in Jesus. Had he known how badly we'd have turned out even after so great a salvation, he probably wouldn't have done it all over again, but now he has and he's God, he can't lie. He will come through on his promise and will enter paradise with the Father's disappointed gaze ever upon us. Is that how you think about yourself as a Christian? Listen to Jesus. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is the language of delight, of joy. What this passage is calling for ultimately is faith. It's trust in God's provision and trust in God's promises. His rule over this world and his rule over your life. So don't worry. Don't worry. Don't fear. Don't be anxious. God feeds filthy ravens and he clothes really short-lived lilies. He will surely care for you and for me. Let's pray. God, we do ask um, forgiveness in response to this passage just for how we so often are so dead set on what we can only see here and now, not by faith, but what's in front of us. And we become paralyzed in only seeing those things and therefore fear and doubt everything and sometimes even forget that there is a God and that you are overseeing all things, even our lives. So forgive us, God. We pray you would use these words to comfort us, to encourage us, and to set each of us free wherever we are uh, in struggles with anxiety. Uh, to set each of us a little more free um, to trust in your promises, your provision, your goodness towards us. Set us free by your word this morning, we pray. And I pray that Loudoun Valley Baptist Church would be a bright witness in a city on the hill in Purcellville and in all of Loudoun County to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.